Please be seated. God, we come to you this morning and we ask for you to speak to us in and through your word. God, may there be nothing of the preacher heard in this place today, but only what is of your spirit, O oh God. We know that you have inspired this book that we hold in our hands, uh, some of us this morning, this book called the Bible, that that, that, that is your word. It's God-breathed. It's faithful for rebuke and correction and for encouragement. God, it, it divides even soul and spirit, joint and, and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. May our little choices, our little decisions, come underneath the authority of your word today. In the name of Christ, God's people said, Amen. I'm using a music stand this morning because my, my little makeshift pulpit, I think, has finally bit the dust. Services will be held this coming Friday. We'll let you know what time. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and, and perhaps having the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them both really about the same. And both that morning equally lay and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Today, our beloved David, the king of Israel, comes to a crossroads. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and like Robert Frost's traveler in the poem, I can picture David standing at the fork and looking down one road, and then down the other, and he considers his options, and he tries to envision the consequences. Perhaps he weighs the consequences, perhaps he does not, but he looks down each as far as he can, and then he makes a choice. Now, I can't tell you whether or not David chooses the road less traveled by or the road more traveled by, but I can tell you this. Number one, he makes the wrong choice. <laughs> when he comes to that fork, he makes the wrong choice. Second, I can tell you that David is a lot like you and I because he's unable to see all the way down the road. As Robert, Robert Frost would put it, I looked down one as far as I could until... It bent in the undergrowth. David is unable to see all the consequences of his choice. And in the passage we come to today, David makes a huge, horrible, life-altering choice that has disastrous results for the rest of his life and even impacts his legacy. But even David's poor choice and, and even Frost's poems, though it's one of my favorites, are misleading. 
Because we don't just pop down at a fork in the road. That doesn't happen out of nowhere. When you're at a fork in the road, just as Frost's traveler is, just as David is, it's always, and I mean always, because there is a road behind you. And at this juncture, whatever your choice, Frost writes that way leads on to way. In other words, the choice that you make today will have its consequences. Just like the choices you've made before on the road that lies behind you have their consequences. The choices that preceded this one, you were offered a choice then just like David was. And those choices that came before are what lead you to the fork that you're standing at now in the exact same way that David had. Here's the deal. David has been on this road towards adultery and murder for a while now. He's experienced success. God has shown him favor. He's obeyed in so many areas, but there is an undercurrent of private decisions that have led him to this fork in the road. And based on the choices David has made in his private life, it's almost as if that when he's presented with temptation, it's almost as if he has no other choice. As Frost would say, his way has led on to way. As we would say, he's made his proverbial bed, now he must lie in it. When we started the series in First and Second Samuel, I read First and Second Samuel, uh, Lessons in the Life of David, King in the Kingdom, Lessons in the Life of David. We've been studying First and Second Samuel, and I, and I read them in their entirety, sometimes in one sitting, sometimes I would split it up over the course of a day or over the course of a couple days, but I went through it multiple times, and as I went through it, I started to see these common themes kind of repeated in the life of David. Some of those common themes are nobody wins at the comparison game. How many of you remember that? one. They're only losers in the comparison game, some of you. Good. When I walk away from God, I'm walking into trouble. I saw that theme repeated in the life of David. Listen to the voice of faith, not fear. Remember Eliab, David's brother, was the voice of fear, not faith. Saul listens to the voice of fear, not faith. And David, thus far, has been listening to the voice of faith, not fear. I assure you, he begins to listen to the voice of fear today. I wrote down this common theme from the life of David. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And then when I had all those common themes listed, I would read and reread First and Second Samuel. And every time I came across one of those themes, I put a little tally mark by it. Every time I saw that theme, I'd put a little tally mark or I'd put a little check mark by that theme. Do you want to know what theme shows up more in my reading of 1st and 2nd Samuel than any other theme? And it's what we're going to camp on today. Here it is, the one that showed up more than any other theme. I am the sum total of all my choices. I would even add one little word, ironic, because the little word that I'm going to add is little. <laughs> I am the sum total of all of my little choices. I saw that theme repeated both positively and negatively in the life of David over and over and over. And if I can convince you of that one concept today, if you and I can learn to make small, God-honoring, Christ-exalting choices every day, little 
choices. If I can convince you of that, then I will be absolutely ecstatic and I will feel like I did what God wanted me to do today. So if you're jotting notes down, that's where we're going to spend our entire time today is on that one statement, I am the sum total of all of my little choices. Many of us get excited about the big choices. You know, we get excited about but those big choices that we're faced with, whether they're good or bad, or the consequences, whether they're good or bad, but it's the small stuff, the mundane, the seemingly insignificant that will truly put us on the road less traveled. As a pastor, I have people come into my office occasionally, and they ask for guidance and counsel. And, and typically, they're asking for guidance and counsel on the big decisions. Should I or should I not get married? Should I or should I not move? Should I or should I not change careers? I'm seeking God's will. Would you pray with me? I want some guidance. I want some counsel. You know what people rarely ask me? In fact, I've never been asked this question when people come in and, and ask for pastoral guidance or counsel in my office. Would you help me make a series of small decisions that will lead me down the road less traveled. But the interesting thing is those small decisions, I'm absolutely convinced life's little choices have the greatest impact. You and I are the sum total of all of our little decisions. We like to focus on the big decisions, like whether or not to have an affair, which is the decision David is presented with today. But we fail to recognize that the greater significance lies in the sum total of all of the little choices. For David and for you and me, we absolutely must not underestimate the power of life's little choices. Here's why. Because the David and Goliath moments are preceded by thousands of small choices. Remember, remember we talked about this? That God's greatest doors of opportunity rest on the smallest hinges of choices to obey. You know, the converse is also true. That the greatest, uh, the biggest doors of disastrous, life-altering sin are sometimes resting on the smallest hinges of choices. Little choices to disobey. As we proceed this morning, I encourage you to ask yourself, when you look back at that fork in the road, what do you want to be able to say of yourself? When you look back at that fork in the road, what do you want people to be able to say of you? The way to get there is by little, small choices. Today, I want to offer you some counsel from the life of David. I want to offer you some counsel regarding that question that no one seems to ask. If I am the sum total of all my little choices, how do I make choices that add up to a life that honors God? If you're jotting notes down, just jot that question down. If I am the sum total of all my little choices, and I am, How in the world do I make choices that add up to a life that honors God? What we're going to see in this passage, and I'm going to read it in its entirety in a moment. What we're going to see in this passage is David make two really, really huge, disastrous, big choices. Adultery and murder. He breaks two of the big ten, right? But I want you to know that he's made a lot of little choices that have led him to that fork in the road. As I read it, 
listen for the little choices, and then we're going to talk about the answer to that question. If I am the sum total of all my little choices, how do I make small choices that add up to a life that honors God? 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles with you, you're more than welcome to open them up. In fact, I would love it if you would. If not, we do have the scripture up here on the screen and you can follow along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version just so you know. 2 Samuel chapter 11 reads this way. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him. And all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. She sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, that's Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a euphemism, just so you know. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and, they, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today, also tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he, David, made him, Uriah, drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone from, on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? 
Then you shall say, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent, to tell, sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to her house, brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Oh no. What has happened? To our beloved David. He has made a horrible choice, and we're using this man as a positive example, and we've been doing it for weeks. And you're right, the choice that he makes is horrible, the choice that he makes is disastrous. But listen close to me the choice that he makes is a result of lots of small choices. David takes the rails off of his life. And when a train comes off the rails, what happens? Train wreck. When David takes the rails off of his life, that's what happens to his life. Train wreck. In other words, adultery and murder. And I want you to see seven little choices that might seem totally insignificant. Seven choices, small, little things that David does that add up to this disastrous consequence. And here's what we're going to learn today. I am the sum total of all my choices. So I'm going to do the right thing in the little things and know that they add up to something big. Because if I do the wrong thing in the little things, they'll add up to something bad. Choice number one. Choice number one, that David makes little choice that that radically transforms the trajectory of his life. David makes a choice in his mission. David makes a choice in his mission. Verse one says this, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, some Bible scholars would tell you that David is about 50 uh, at this time. And yes, he's about 50 at this time. And they would argue it's kind of cool for David to stay back. He's protecting himself. He's a king of Israel. He shouldn't get you know, involved in the battle because he might get you know, hurt or get killed and die. So he's protecting himself. So it's okay. I would push back against those Bible scholars and say that's absolutely not the case. And I would agree with a whole separate group of scholars that would say David should not be in Jerusalem. He should be with his men. Why? Because in the chapter before, listen very close. I'm going to, I'm going to run through this really quickly, but you got to listen close. In the chapter before, the king of the Ammonites had died and his son had taken over. 
And David's heart went out to this kid, and he's like, man, you lose your dad. You're now on the throne of this country, and you're, you're just a kid. You're, just, you're young, and, and you just lost your dad. And, 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 and this, is, this is a tough thing to, to now be ruling over this country that your dad used to rule over. I'm going to send some of my best guys to wrap my arms around this kid, to embrace this kid, to offer my condolences and to say, we stand with you in your grief. David, Yahweh, and Israel are with you in your grief. But when those messengers show up to this kid, this new king of the Ammonites, this kid's uh, advisors tell him, these guys aren't really here to express condolences. They're here to spy on you. They're here to spy on you. So the kid says, all right, that sounds like a, you know, that sounds reasonable. So I'm going to shave their head. I'm going to strip them naked from the waist down, and I'm going to send them back to Israel. Totally humiliates these, these messengers from David. Totally humiliates Yahweh and mocks Yahweh and mocks the nation of Israel when he strips these messengers naked from the waist down and shaves their head, and he sends them back to David. So the nation of Israel goes to war with the Ammonites for obvious reasons. But the nation of Israel's army is split. They're fighting Syria on one side and the Ammonites on the other. And the Syrians start to win. So instead of splitting the army, they have to rally together and overtake the Syrians. But in the meantime, they have to ignore the Ammonites, those ones who had, uh, who had mocked these men and who had mocked Israel and embarrassed these men, these delegates that David had sent just to express condolences. So in the spring of the next year, on the anniversary of when the Ammonites, uh, when, when Israel defeated Syria and had to leave the Ammonites, David sends Joab, he sends his soldiers, he sends Israel, but he does not go. Here's what I'm telling you. God had a mission for David. God had a task for David. It was to protect Israel, to protect the name of God, and to protect his men. And David doesn't do it. He stays in Jerusalem. He shirks his responsibilities. He doesn't live up to the calling, to the mission that God had given him. He has a task. He has a mission. He has a calling. And rather than fulfill his calling, he chose to stay home and he got off course. Has God called you to something? Has he called you to serving in a ministry at your home church? Has he called you to evangelism? Has he called you to encouraging others and speaking well of them? Has he called you to spending daily time with the Lord? If you're answering no, I would beg to differ. The New Testament calls us all to those things. Temptation is far easier to fight when you are running after the mission God has called you to. You think those are little choices, but those little choices add up to something big. Fulfill the task. Fulfill the calling. Fulfill the mission God has called you to, because when we don't, it's one little decision. One seemingly insignificant, seemingly mundane thing. I'll send Joab. I'll just stay in Jerusalem, and it leads to disastrous consequences for David. We face the same thing when God has called you to a mission. It's not just about that. It is about that, but it's not just about that. It's about what it adds up to. Number two, the second small decision, little decision that David makes is David makes a choice in his leisure. 
David makes a choice in his leisure. Read verse 2. It says it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Do I blame David for taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon? Absolutely not. If I blame David for that, then I should blame myself for yesterday at about 2 p.m., right? So it's, it's not about that. God gave us rest. He gave us the Sabbath. He gave us days of rest and moments of rest and and sleep in the evening and, and even seasons of rest in our life. But listen close. He gave us rest so that we could be replenished and renewed to fulfill the very task for which God called us. You know that old adage, Satan finds work for idle hands? You know that? This happens with David right here. He's leisurely laying on his couch in the middle of the afternoon. It certainly does not seem to me like David is resting and being spiritually, physically, emotionally, and mentally renewed to fulfill what God has called him to because he's in Jerusalem not fulfilling what God has called him to. He makes a choice in his leisure. Men and women of God, if you want to protect your morality, protect your leisure time. Are you using leisure to renew your mind, renew your body, renew your spirit for God's mission? Or are you slothful and lazy? Do you use leisure to self-indulge? Do you let boredom take over your mind and your mind should be focused on the task at hand? Use rest for the purpose. Make a small choice. It's small, isn't it? It's insignificant, but it leads to something big. Make small choices in the way you use leisure. Number three, David makes a choice in terms of location. David makes a choice in terms of location. Verse two again, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Did David know that Bathsheba would be on the roof that day within his eyesight? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Here's here's what we can ascertain from the text. This is not the first time David's been on his roof. It's his house. He, He made a choice, a small choice, to hang out on the roof. And it led, that small, seemingly insignificant, mundane choice led him to a huge, huge mistake. Disastrous consequences. I've got a friend that um, he used to call me and say, hey, I need, you to, I need you to hold me accountable to you know, this thing and that thing, this thing. I'm struggling with these things in my life. I need you to hold me accountable. And All right, cool. Like, we can do that. I'll hold you accountable. So one night he calls me at 2.30 in the morning and he says, uh, hey, man, I, I need just some accountability right now. I'm like, wow, it's 2.30 in the morning. First of all, let me wake up, right? And then, and then I'll hold you accountable to whatever that is. And I said, where are you? And he I said, it seems loud where you are. And I said, where are you? And he says, well, I'm in Vegas at a strip club. And I think I'm going to make a bad choice here. And I said, as far as I'm concerned, you've already made a really bad choice. This is not maybe I might make a bad choice. You've already made a bad choice. 
and the funny thing is for him, see, it was a series of little things. It was a series of little choices regarding his location. He chose to go to this conference in Las Vegas. And at the end of the day at the conference, there were two groups of people going out to dinner. One was some believers and people that knew him and loved him and cared for him and wanted him to make good choices. And the other group was a group of non-believers. And he, in his mind, said, "Ah, it's, it's not that big thing. I'll choose this location and not that location. I'm going to choose to be on my roof by myself. And it led to another choice, and it led to another choice, and it led to another choice. The next thing you know, it's 2.30 in the morning at a strip club in Vegas, and he's going, how did I even end up here? Same thing happens with David. Next thing you know, there's adultery and murder, and he gets confronted eventually. How did I even end up here? I'm telling you, you made a choice in terms of your location. You should not be on your roof by yourself. For some of you, you're thinking, man, I don't, you know, I, don't, I don't nap on the roof typically, so I don't know how do I apply that to my life, right? I don't, I, that doesn't make any sense. Um, here's, here's for me, here's a, here's, here's a decision I have made personally in terms of location. I will not get in a car with a woman alone. My wife, I will. We don't like get rides everywhere else, but my wife, I will. For, any, for any, anyone else, any other woman, I don't care how old you are or are not, Right? I don't care. Do I struggle with the temptation to have an extramarital affair? No. Do I want to? Absolutely not. So I make choices in terms of location. I just make choices in terms of location. They're small things. But you know what? I know that I am the sum total of all my little decisions. So I'm darn well going to make godly decisions in the little things. I'm going to learn from David. Make choices in terms of location. Number four. David made a choice in terms of vision. In terms of vision. David made a choice with his vision. David saw this woman bathing nude and he did not look away. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. You know, if David would have come down off the roof, like if I were Jonathan, let's, let's just, I'll put myself in those shoes. If I were Jonathan and, and I was David's friend and I was still alive because Jonathan is dead by this point. We'll get there in a minute because we're going to talk about what it means that Jonathan's gone. But if I were Jonathan and, and my friend David came off the roof and he said, dude, there's a naked woman bathing up there. And I would say, okay, from here on out, you don't go on your roof anymore. You come to my roof. You can nap all you want. But David made a choice in terms of vision. Not not only did he see her, but he took a second look and a third look. He looked even to know that she was very beautiful. His gaze was captured by this woman. Men of God, you and I, we have to be ruthless with what we let into our eyes. Absolutely ruthless with what we let in to our eyes. It said that the eyes are the window of the soul, and I would absolutely affirm that. You and I have to be ruthless of what we let into our eyes. I went to a, a school, many of you know this, called Arizona State University. Uh, while I was at Arizona State University, Arizona State University got the dubious ranking of being the number one party school in the United States of America by Playboy magazine. That was while I was at ASU. 
So if you, if you know anything about Phoenix, you know that the weather is very, very warm. It was 80 degrees Fahrenheit when we landed on Christmas Day this last year. So we would walk around ASU campus, um, and, and this is not an exaggeration. Literally, women would go to class in bikini tops. That's, that's not an exaggeration. It, it was always weird. It was like, you know, it, it seems like a weird outfit for algebra, but, you know, um, you know, whatever, whatever you feel like you need to do, right? So I would walk around campus at Arizona State University singing this song in my head. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. I would wear flat-brimmed caps and pull them down over my eyes and stare at the concrete. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And as the weather got warmer in the spring and outfits got skimpier and skimpier, I mean, I I was singing out loud, For the Father up above, he is looking down at love. That's what happens when you're 20, right? Listen, it, it may sound stupid and silly to you. I don't really give a rip. Because I want to make little decisions, little stuff about what comes into my eyes. And I don't mind walking around campus singing out loud at times. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. I want to learn from David. Number five, David makes a little choice in terms of accountability. In terms of accountability, look at verse three. It says, and David sent and inquired about the woman... That's Bathsheba. And the, that's, it says, and one said, but it's a servant. It's a messenger that goes and inquires on David's behalf. And the servant says to David, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Listen close. In this time and place, in the Old Testament, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you've heard this. When people are identified, they're identified relative to their parents. The son of so-and-so, and and the son of so-and-so, and and the daughter of so-and-so, and and the daughter of such-and-such, and the son of so-and-so. It's a very rare occasion, extremely rare, when someone would be identified relative to their spouse. This servant says to David, is this not the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The servant tries to raise a flag up and go, David, I don't know what you're thinking here, Slick, but that woman is married. Like, with all due respect, bud, she's married. Just, Just slip it in there. Just slip it in there. The servant speaks to David like a friend. He warns David, but David doesn't listen. Ever since David brought the ark back to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6, all he's experienced is success, military success. He's grown the nation of Israel. He's expanded their territory. He's united 12 tribes. He's experienced spiritual success. He is firing all cylinders. He's rocking and rolling. He's 50 years old, and he thinks he can retire early. That's why he's you know, making poor choices in terms of leisure. You, you know what David is probably thinking at this point? I have no equals. I mean, Jonathan's gone. That's the guy that David allowed to speak into his life. That's the guy he was accountable to. And this servant tries to hold him accountable to his actions. He tries to hold him accountable to the little decisions in advance. But David says, no, I don't want accountability. Men and women of God, the unaccountable life is not worth living. I want to give you one from my own personal life, just a quick one. 
that I've made a small choice in terms of accountability. I do not have traditional internet browsing software on my phone. It does not exist. I have what's called Covenant Eyes. It's, the browser is horrible, but I pay nine bucks a month for it. It's great, right? Here's why. Because every website I visit on my phone gets sent to three people. Some of you men of God, how's that for a terrifying thought? They're my accountability partners. They see every website I go to. Do I struggle with internet pornography? No. Do I want to? No. So I make little decisions in terms of accountability because I know that they add up to big things. Number six, David makes a choice in terms of habits. David makes a choice in terms of habits. Deuteronomy chapter 17 has very specific instructions for kings in Israel. Listen to what Deuteronomy 17 says, and this is specifically for kings. And he, that's the king of Israel, shall not acquire many wives for himself. I think that's great, like, that's great counsel for anyone, right? Don't acquire a lot of wives. Bad idea. And Deuteronomy 17 says, lest his heart turn away. Look at what happens in 2 Samuel 5.13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. You see it? David is developing sexual habits. He's acquiring for himself wives and concubines, even though God explicitly said, don't do that. He did that. And, and, and you know, in, in our time and place, we would think, oh, well, that's, you know, God, that's a, that's a big deal. That's a big decision. Well, David and his contemporaries would have thought that's a small deal. That's a no-brainer. All kings have a lot of wives. All kings have a lot of comp, uh, concubines. But God says, no, 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 no. I don't care what everybody around you is doing. I don't care what everybody else is doing. You develop healthy habits. So don't acquire for yourself wives and concubines. You know why? Because appetites grow stronger when they're fed. I don't care if it's an appetite for food. I don't care if it's an appetite for alcohol. I don't care if it's an appetite for shopping. I don't care if it's an appetite for sex. They grow stronger when they're fed. And listen close. Appetites for God grow stronger when they're fed. Little decisions. I want you to see what happens to David, even from the perspective of a biopsychologist. I have this book. It's called um, Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks the Male Brain. You want to talk about uh, what pornography does to the male brain from a chemical perspective, from a hormonal perspective? This is an outstanding book. This guy is a believer, and he's a biopsychologist. His name is William Struthers. And what he does in this book is he demonstrates that appetites, habits, grow stronger when they're fed. So when we make seemingly insignificant, seemingly small decisions in terms of habits, like David did, it gets worse and worse and worse. And he says that we develop neural pathways in our hormones fire and chemicals fire in our brain. And the more that those neural pathways get worn, it's like a trail on a, on a mountainside. It gets worn down and worn down and worn down every time we intake an image, every time we
time we look at something and let it in, every time we view pornography or view sexually explicit images, and just like David uh, had wives and concubines, he developed neural pathways. Listen to what William Struthers says about these neural pathways. He says, this neural system trough, like the, 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 the crevice that you cut in your brain every time you feed that sexual appetite, along with neurotransmitters and hormones, are the underlying physical realities of a man's sexual experience. Each time that an unhealthy sexual pattern is repeated, a neurological, emotional, and spiritual erosion carves out a channel that will eventually develop into a canyon from which there is no escape. It's just a little porn habit. It's just a Victoria's Secret catalog. You think it's insignificant. It's not. It's absolutely not. It's cutting a neural pathway in your brain according to science, not according to like what Luke says. It's cutting a neural pathway into your brain that that crevice will become a canyon and that canyon you cannot escape from just like we see in the life of David. Small choices in terms of habits. Finally, number seven, David makes small choices in terms of his response. He makes small choices in terms of his response. When David figure out, figures out he's done something wrong, when David figures out he's got this woman pregnant, when David figures out that, wow, this is destructive, this is going nowhere fast, what does he do? He calls the woman's husband home from the battlefield and encourages her husband, Uriah, go to your house and wash your feet. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, know what I mean, know what I mean. Go to your house and sleep with your wife. Go to your house and get your wife pregnant. And because Uriah is one of David's most loyal soldiers, he says, no way. Joab's out fighting. The ark of God is dwelling in tents. I'm too loyal to Yahweh. I'm too loyal to Israel. I'm too loyal to you. And he sleeps in the lobby of David's house. How do you think that made David feel? Then when that response doesn't work, David tries to get Uriah drunk. He actually succeeds at it. He gets Uriah drunk, and he hopes that it will compromise Uriah's loyalty. So then, now that he's drunk, eh, now I'll go to your house. And Uriah says, no. So finally, when all his little choices and all his responses and all his efforts to cover up his sin don't work, he writes a letter to his general, Joab, and he puts it in the hand of Uriah. And the letter says this, go up to the side of the city, and when the fighting is crazy, you give the word and everybody draw back, leave Uriah there so he dies. He arranges for his murder. And get this, get this now, he puts that letter in Uriah's hand. Do you see his little choices, his small choices in terms of response led him to arrange for the murder of one of his most trusted soldiers? Men and women of God, when, when we mess up, here's how, here's how you deal with it. We'll learn more about this next week when David is confronted with his sin. Here's how you deal with messing up. You go like this. I messed up. I messed up. God... I messed up. 
And, and I just want to come before you with 1 John 1, 9. It says, if I confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive my sins, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But I know I've got to confess them. It's conditional. If you confess, I messed up. And then you go to people around you and you say, look, I messed up. I need, some, I need some help. I need some accountability. I need to make small decisions and some things so I get on a great life trajectory. So I stop cutting this neural pathway in my brain that I know is going to lead me to something disastrous. But David still doesn't do it. As I'm reading this text, I'm like, David, like every time I want it to turn out differently. And it always turns out the same because David makes little choices that add up to a big impact. God still gives me opportunities to make little choices every day. God still gives me opportunity to make little choices every day, small choices that I know are going to add up to something big. They might seem insignificant, they might seem mundane, they might seem stupid, but I know that I am the sum total of all my small decisions. I want to tell you about one in closing, and then we'll be done. I went to get a haircut on Friday, and um, I was trying to grow my hair out longer. Um, so I go in and I sit down in this lady's chair and I say, um, you know, I, 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 I don't want a haircut is essentially kind of how I led. And she goes, well, why are you here? That's kind of what we do. You know, it says haircuts out on the sign. That's what, what else are we supposed to do? And I said, I'm trying to grow my hair out. So just take the ends off, right? Just the, just the you know, split end so your hair grows faster. You guys know what I'm talking about? Just the ends. And she says, well, you want it with like what you had last time, like a one and a half guard on the side? I'm like, no, you're not hearing me. I don't want a haircut. Just take a little bit from off my ear and just a little bit of the ends. I just want it to grow faster because I want it to grow longer. And she said, cool, I got it. So she starts cutting the sides and I'm thinking, wow, she's doing great. And then she moves to the top and it's like a lawnmower on the top of my head. Like my hair was a lot longer on Friday than it is now. So she gets halfway through and um, I say, you're really taking off a lot. And she says, well, do you want less taken off? And I said, well, it doesn't matter now. Like, you're halfway through, you know. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm getting angry. I'm getting frustrated. And she gets to the end, and she's cut off a whole bunch of my hair, and I wanted it longer, and I'm frustrated. And I just said, I'm not paying for this. Like, I'm not paying for this. And I left. I said, I, you didn't listen. You didn't do what I asked you to do. I'm not paying for this. So I went home and I told my wife. And she said, your hair does not look good, but that doesn't matter for squat. This is totally out of character for you. It's not up to you whether or not you want to pay for a service. That's up to the manager whether they want to render that service for free because you didn't like what you got. You will go back tomorrow and you will pay for your haircut. And I said, but... And I'm studying this stupid passage, right? <laughs> about accountability and about little decisions adding up to really big things. And look, it's, it's, it's small, is it not? Like, like, I don't like my hair. I shouldn't have to pay for it. She said, that's not your call. Go back and pay for it. I went back in. And I said, I'm really sorry. So-and-so cut my hair yesterday. She's not here today, but she cut my hair yesterday. I owe her money. 
and I owe her a generous tip, which I did. Why? Because I, because I think like that little decision like matters? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I am the sum total of all my little decisions. Just like David, just like you. 